You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. I'm on the third section, which concerns Ascension and Pentecost. It is lecture 18 in this entire series, but lecture 2 in the uh, subsection on Ascension and Pentecost. And it's entitled Whitsun, The Festival of the Free Individuality, given in Hamburg on Whitsunday, 1910. Quote, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Festivals are beacons of remembrance. They turn our thoughts and feelings to the past. Their meaning awakens in us thoughts that link us to all that our souls held holy in distant ages. But thoughts of the future of mankind, that is, of our own soul's future, are also roused in us when we understand the content of these festivals. Feelings of enthusiasm for the future are awakened in us. Ideals inspire our will, which gives us the strength to undertake future tasks in an ever more adequate way. Let us, therefore, turn our gaze both backward to the past and forward to the future, to best understand the Whitsun Festival. Its deep significance for Western humanity can be apparent to us through the mighty picture we all know well, which speaks to the very depths of our soul. Having accomplished the mystery of Golgotha, the founder and inaugurator of Christianity, dwelt for a time among those able to perceive him in the embodiment which he then assumed. The events which followed are brought before our souls in a significant series of pictures, In a mighty vision known as the Ascension, his closest disciples visibly beheld the dispersal of that bodily form which he had assumed after the mystery of Golgotha. Then, ten days later, there followed what is expressed for us in another picture, which speaks powerfully to all hearts with the will to understand it. The disciples of Christ, those who were the first to understand him, are gathered together. Deep in their hearts they feel the mighty impulse which through him has entered into the evolution of humanity. Gathered together in deepest devotion on the day of Pentecost, the time-honored festival of their people, they wait expectantly for the promised events to be fulfilled in their souls. What is described as the, quote, rushing mighty wind, close quote, lifts their souls up into higher vision. They are summoned to turn their gaze on what is yet to come to pass, on what will await them when, with the fire impulse they have received into their hearts, they live upon earth in future, in incarnation after incarnation. Next is painted before our soul the picture of the tongues of fire which descend upon the head of each of the disciples. Another tremendous vision here reveals to them the future of this impulse. For, gathered together, and beholding in spirit the spiritual world, these men, the first to understand the Christ, feel as if they were not speaking to people near to them in space or in time, 
may feel their hearts born far, far away among the different peoples of the globe. They feel as if something lives in their hearts which is translatable into all languages, which the hearts of all men will be able to understand. In this mighty vision of the future of Christianity, which rises before them, these first disciples feel themselves as though surrounded by future disciples from among all the peoples of the earth. They feel as if they will one day have the power to proclaim the gospel in words that will be understandable, not only to those directly near them in time and space, but to all who will live on earth in future times, whom they will encounter. This was the inner content of soul and feeling of these earliest disciples of Christ at the first Christian festival of Whitsun. Let us now consider the interpretation of these pictures in their deepest esoteric Christian meaning. The Spirit, also rightly named the Holy Spirit, sent His forces down to the earth in the first descent to the earth of Christ Jesus. He next manifested when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, once again, the same Spirit in another form, in the form of many single shining fiery tongues, descended upon each single individual of the first Christian believers. We are told about this Holy Spirit at the Whitsun festival in a quite special way, but we must get clear in our minds the meaning of the words Holy Spirit as they are used in the Gospels. In the first place, how was the Spirit usually spoken of in ancient times, the times preceding those of the Gospel? It was spoken of in many connections, but in one connection particularly, which we can once again recognize through the new knowledge which spiritual science gives us. When we pass through birth into the existence between birth and death, the body in which our individuality is incarnated is determined in two ways. Our bodily nature has actually a double function to fulfill. It makes us a human being, but it also makes us members of this or that people, this or that race or family. In the ancient times which preceded Christianity, little as yet was experienced of what can be called worldwide humanity, of that feeling of human fellowship which has increasingly come to live in human hearts since Christianity was proclaimed and which tells us that we are part of all mankind. Much stronger was the feeling which makes each person a member of a particular people or tribe. An expression of this can be found in the ancient traditions of the Hindu belief that one can only be a real Hindu through blood ties. Despite many exceptions to the principle, this was also firmly upheld by the old Hebrew people before the coming of Christ. According to their view, a person belonged to his people only because his parents themselves belonged to it, were blood-related, and therefore had placed him into it. Moreover, the further we go back into antiquity, the greater absence do we find of any feeling of separate individuality. People experienced themselves as part of a race, a people, and nothing more. Gradually, however, people began to experience themselves as individual human beings with separate human qualities. It came to be felt that two principles were present in outer human nature, 
membership of a people, and awareness of oneself as a single personality. Now, the forces inherent in these two principles were ascribed in separate ways to the two parents, the principle by virtue of which one belonged more to one's people and to the general race community was ascribed to the mother, to the female line. It was believed that the folk spirit held sway in the mother, that she was filled with it, passing on to the child the qualities common to her people. The father, on the other hand, was believed to be the bearer and transmitter of the principle which gave individual personal characteristics to the human being. In the old Hebrew conception of pre-Christian times, therefore, each person, born, received an individual personality through his father, but his mother endowed him with the folk spirit with which her whole being was imbued. In the mother was said to dwell the spirit of the race, and this was the spirit which sent its forces down out of spiritual realms into humanity which was said to pour its forces down into the physical world, into humanity, by way of the mother. Through the Christ impulse, however, a new conception came about, one which said that this spirit of which people had previously spoken, this folk spirit, was to be replaced by one which, though certainly related to it, worked at a far higher level. Connected to the whole of mankind, as the earlier spirit had been connected to a particular people, this spirit was to be given to man and to fill him with the power to say, quote, I no longer feel I belong only to a part of humanity, but to the whole of it. I am a member of the whole of mankind and will become a member of it ever more and more. Close quote. This force through which a universal human quality streamed into the whole of mankind was ascribed to, quote, the Holy Spirit, close quote. Thus the Spirit, which expressed itself in the force flowing into the Mother, was raised up to Holy Spirit. The one who was to bring mankind the power to continually develop this universal human nature in earthly life could only, as the first such being, dwell in a body bequeathed through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the mother of Jesus received in the Annunciation. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, we hear that Joseph was a righteous man. This word was used in the old sense and meant that he was one who could only believe that a child of his would be born out of the spirit of his people. He is therefore thrown into consternation when he discovers that the mother of his child is filled, is permeated, for this is the right meaning of the original word in our language, by the power of a spirit that was not merely a folk spirit, but the spirit of universal humanity. And he does not feel that he can live with this woman, for the child she bears him would be inhabited by the spirit of all humanity, rather than the spirit he adheres to in his, in quotes, righteousness. Accordingly, he wished, as it says, quote, to put her away privily. Close quote. It was only when he also had received a communication from the spiritual world that he received the strength to decide to have a son by this woman who was penetrated and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus we have seen that this spirit was creatively at work, 
pouring its forces into human evolution at the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. In the mighty act of the baptism in the Jordan, it was again active. We may therefore now understand that the power of the Holy Spirit is the power which will raise each person ever more and more above all that differentiates and separates him from others, so that he becomes a member of the whole of humanity on earth. It is a power which works as a bond of soul between each and every soul, no matter in which bodies they may be. It is this same Holy Spirit, we are told, that streams in another revelation at the Whitsun Festival into the individualities of those who first understood Christianity. At the baptism by John, the Spirit stands before us in the picture of the dove. Now, however, another picture appears, the picture of the fiery tongues. It is in a single dove, a single form, that the Holy Spirit manifests itself in John's baptism. It is in many single tongues that it manifests itself at the Pentecostal festival. And each of the single tongues brings inspiration to an individual, to each of the individualities of the first disciples of Christianity. What meaning, then, for our souls has this Whitsun symbol? After Christ, the bearer of the universal human spirit, had completed his work on the earth, after he had let all the sheaths of his earthly embodiment disperse and enter, whole and unified, into the spiritual being of the earth, only then could those who understood the Christ impulse receive into their hearts the possibility of speaking of it, of being active in its service. The outer earthly manifestation of the Christ impulse had vanished at the ascension into the individual totality of the spiritual world. Ten days later it came forth again out of the single individual hearts of its first followers. And because the same spirit which had worked in the power of the Christ impulse now reappeared in multiple form, the first disciples of Christianity became the bearers and preachers of the Christ message. This event at the very beginning of Christian history is a mighty beacon and sign to us. It reminds us that just as each single one of the first disciples received the Christ impulse into themselves, just as it was granted to them to receive it in the form of tongues of fire inspiring their own souls, so all of us, when we strive to understand the Christ impulse, can receive its power individualized into our own hearts can grow ever more imbued by it, can receive the strength which enables us to serve it more and more fully. This sign and beacon from the beginning of Christianity can be the source of great hope to us. The more we perfect ourselves, the more we can feel that the Holy Spirit speaks out of our own inner being. Our thinking, feeling and willing can become ever more permeated by this Holy Spirit which through its manifold division is also an individual spirit in each single human individuality in which it works. This Holy Spirit enables us to evolve as human beings, to become free human souls. As the spirit of freedom, it streamed out through the first disciples of Christianity in the first Christian Pentecostal festival. 
It is the Spirit whose most significant characteristic is indicated by Christ himself. Quote, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Close quote. We can become free only in the Spirit. So long as we are dependent on that bodily nature in which our spirit dwells, so long do we remain its slave. We can become free only when we find ourselves again in spirit and out of the spirit become master over what is in us. To become free requires the discovery of the spirit within ourselves. Our true spirit is the universal human spirit, which we recognize as the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit entering into us, which we must bring to birth in ourselves and allow to become manifest. Thus the Whitsun symbol is transformed for us into the most powerful of our ideals, the free development of the human soul into a self-enclosed, free individuality. This was felt not in clear consciousness, but dimly, intuitively, by those who fixed the Whitsun festival on a particular day of the year. Inspiration worked through them. Whoever cannot feel the wisdom playing into the way outer festivals have been ordained understands little of the world. Let us consider from this point of view the three festivals of Christmas, Easter, and Whitsun. Christmas falls on a certain day in the year. It has been fixed once and for all for a particular day in December. And every year we celebrate Christmas on this same day. The Easter festival is different. It is a movable feast, determined by the constellations in the heavens. It falls on the first Sunday after the full moon, which follows the spring equinox. For this festival we must direct our gaze into the heights of heaven where the stars follow their ordained course and proclaim to us the laws of the cosmos. Easter is a movable feast, just as the moment of awakening of higher consciousness, which can free us from our normal lower human nature, occurs at different times in different individuals. Just as in one year Easter falls on this day, in another year on that, so the moment comes sooner in some cases, later in others according to our individual past and the strength of our endeavor when we each become aware, quote, I can find the power in myself through a higher human being which arises out of me. Close quote. Christmas, on the other hand, is an immovable feast. It occurs at the point in the year when we have left behind us the waxing and waning of nature, the joy of nature's upwelling, streaming forces. We now behold nature in a state of sleep. It withdraws into itself, draws in all the seed forces, all the powers of growth. When the outer sense world is at its lowest ebb, when the earth herself shows how the spiritual forces have withdrawn to gather for the coming year, when outer nature is at her most silent, then the Christmas festival can inspire us with hope. We can become aware that we are not only united with earthly forces, which at Christmas have fallen silent, but also with forces which are present in spiritual realms. This hope should rise up in our souls as we see the earth sink, as it were, into sleep, 
It should well up out of the deepest, inmost part of the soul itself and become spiritual light when outer physical nature is at its darkest. Through the symbol of the Christmas festival, we should be reminded that we are initially bound with our ego forces to our earthly body, in the same way as the life of nature around us is bound up with the cycle of the seasons. The Christmas festival is placed at the point when the earth falls asleep, which occurs each year at the same time. It is the time when we should remember that although we are bound up with our body, we are not condemned to be wholly united with it. It is a time of hope that we may find the strength to become an inwardly free soul. The Christmas festival should remind us both of our connection with the body and of our hope to free ourselves eventually from this body. But it is our own efforts which determine how soon or how late we unfold those powers for which we may hope, and which lead us up again into the spiritual heavenly world. This is what the Easter festival must teach us. The Easter festival reminds us that we not only have at our disposal those forces which the body gives us, and which are themselves, of course, divine spiritual forces, but that as human beings we can raise ourselves above the earth. Hence it is the Easter festival that speaks to us of that force which sooner or later must awaken in us. Easter as a movable festival is determined according to the constellations in the heavens. We must awaken the recollection of what we can become by turning our gaze to the sky so as to see how we can be freed from earthly existence and lift ourselves above it. The strength we receive in this way gives us the possibility of inner freedom, of inner release. When we feel inwardly that we can raise ourselves above ourselves, we shall then strive to make this real. We shall then have the will to free our inner being, to pull it clear, as it were, from its bondage to our outer being. We shall, of course, still dwell in our outer self, but shall become fully conscious of the inner spiritual power. This moment at which in this inner Easter festival we grow aware that we can free ourselves also determines whether we attain to the Whitsun festival, whether we may fill the spirit which has found itself within itself with a content that is not of this world but of the spiritual world. This spiritual content alone can make us free. It is the spiritual truth of which Christ said, quote, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Close quote. The Whitsun festival is dependent on the Easter festival, is a consequence of it. Easter is determined according to the heavenly constellations. Whitsun is an event which must follow as its necessary effect after the lapse of a certain number of weeks. We may see the workings of deep wisdom, therefore, even in the way in which the times of these festivals are determined. We see that these festivals are of necessity placed just where they are in the course of the year, and that each year they remind us of what we have been and are, and of what we can become. When we know how to think of these festivals in this way, they can unite us with all that is past, 
can become for us an impulse implanted in humanity to carry it forward into the future. The Whitsun Festival in particular can bestow confidence, strength, and hope when we understand it in this way. When we know what we can become in our souls through following those who, as the first to understand the Christ impulse, made themselves worthy to have the fiery tongues descend upon them. When we understand that the Whitsun Festival belongs not only to that moment, but to the future as well, then the expectancy of receiving the Holy Spirit is conjured up before our spiritual eyes. But then we must learn to understand this Whitsun Festival in its truly Christian sense. We must learn to understand the immediate message of the mighty tongues, the mighty Whitsun inspiration. What was it which sounded forth with trumpet tones from the, quote, rushing mighty wind, close quote, in that picture which is placed before our souls of the first Christian Pentecostal festival? What kind of voices were these which proclaimed in the wondrous music of the spheres, quote, you have experienced the power of the Christ impulse, you who are the first to understand? and the power of the Christ has become a power within your own souls, so that each one of you, now that the event of Golgotha has been accomplished, is able to perceive the presence of Christ with such strength as the Christ impulse worked upon each single one of you. The Christ impulse, however, is an impulse of freedom. Its true effect does not reveal itself when it is active outside the human soul, but only within the individual human soul itself. So it was that those who first understood the Christ felt themselves called through the Whitsun event to proclaim what was in their own souls, what in the revelation and inspiration of their own souls revealed itself to them as the content of the Christ teaching. They were aware that the Christ impulse had worked in the holy preparation which they had undergone before the Whitsun festival. They felt themselves called through the power of the Christ impulse working within them to let speak the fiery tongues, the individualized Holy Spirit within them, and to go forth and proclaim the gospel of Christ. It was not simply what Christ had once said to them that those first disciples recognized as words of Christ, not only those words he had already spoken. They recognized as Christ words that which comes out of the power of a soul which feels the Christ impulse within itself. To this end did the Holy Spirit pour itself in individualized form into each single human soul, so that each one might develop the power in itself to feel the Christ impulse. Then, for such a soul, Christ's words gain new force and meaning. Quote, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Close quote. Those, therefore, who are earnestly at pains to experience the Christ impulse may also feel called upon by what the Christ impulse arouses in their hearts to proclaim afresh the word of Christ however new and different it may sound in each succeeding epoch of mankind. 
The Holy Spirit was not poured down so that we might cling to the few words of the Gospels spoken in the first decade of Christianity's foundation, but so that the Gospel of Christ may continually speak anew to us. As human souls progress from epoch to epoch, from incarnation to incarnation, they need new things to be spoken to them. Should these souls, advancing from incarnation to incarnation, only always have to hear the gospel words spoken when they were incarnated in bodies at the time of the temporal appearance of Christ on the earth? Within the Christ impulse dwells the power to speak to all people until the end of earth's cycle of time. For this to be, however, the message of Christ must be made known to the ever-advancing human souls in a way appropriate to them in each new age. So when we feel the full strength and power of the Whitsun impulse, we should also feel that it is our task to attend to Christ's words. Quote, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth's cycle of time. Close quote. And when you fill yourselves with the Christ impulse, you can hear the word, which came through Christ at the founding of Christianity, resounding on through all ages. The word which Christ speaks to all future times, because he is with us forever. The word which all can hear who have the will to hear it. The power of the Whitsun impulse, therefore, allows us to regard Christianity as something which is ever-growing which is continually bestowing on us new revelations. We ourselves are aware that the Christ Word itself, resounding to us from the spiritual choirs of heaven, is proclaimed by present-day spiritual science. We say to those who would preserve Christianity only in its original form, quote, We truly understand Christ, for we understand the real meaning of the Whitsun festival. Close quote. When we feel ourselves called upon to draw ever new wisdom from Christianity, then such wisdom adapts itself to the soul's needs as it progresses continually from one incarnation to another. Christianity is endlessly full, endlessly rich. Human beings themselves, however, often fell far short of such perfection in the centuries in which Christianity was first proclaimed. What presumption it would be to say even at the present time that mankind is now mature enough to understand Christianity in its infinite fullness and greatness? True Christian humility knows that although the scope of Christian wisdom is without end, the receptivity of man for this wisdom is at first limited and will only gradually become more perfect. Let us look at the first Christian centuries right up to our own day. A great and mighty impulse, the greatest ever given in the earthly evolution of man, was given with the Christ impulse. Everyone who learns to understand the process of the evolution of the earth can become aware of this. But one thing must not be forgotten. Only a small part of what the Christ impulse contains has been understood up until now. In nearly Two millennia of Christian development, the teachings of esoteric Christianity, available only as a secret doctrine, could not be incorporated into the outer general life of mankind. 
the idea of reincarnation, for example, which today can be taught as a Christian truth, could not previously be incorporated. When we teach reincarnation today, we are fully conscious in the sense in which we have characterized the Whitsun Festival, that reincarnation is a Christian truth, which can now be made known exoterically to a humanity which has become more mature, but which could not have been rightly understood by souls of the first Christian centuries. We may, of course, cite single instances of the appearance of the idea of reincarnation in Christianity, but this proves little, for one can discover from those opponents of spiritual science who call themselves Christian how little is known of reincarnation in exoteric Christianity. All that they know is that spiritual science teaches something or other about reincarnation, and that is enough for them to say it is Indian or Buddhistic. They do not know that it is the living Christ of the spiritual world who is the living teacher of reincarnation today. People believe that these are just old, outworn doctrines. In fact, the teachings of reincarnation and karma have still not yet been able to penetrate into exoteric Christianity. Only little by little, in one age after another, can the fullness of truth which lies in Christianity be given to mankind. But the Christ impulse itself, which is not a teaching or a theory, but a real force that has to be experienced in the innermost depths of the soul, imparts something to us. What it imparts can in fact best be understood by looking at the connection between the Christ impulse and the teachings of reincarnation. We know that a few centuries before Christianity began, the teachings of the Buddha were widespread in eastern lands. While the power and the impulse of Christianity spread from the Near East into the West, the Far East witnessed a great expansion of Buddhism. We know that this teaching contained the doctrine of reincarnation. But in what form? For those who know the facts, Buddhism presents itself as the final product of the teachings and revelations which had preceded it. It contained in itself all the greatness of antiquity. It represented something like a final conclusion of the primeval wisdom of mankind, which also contained the doctrine of reincarnation. But how did Buddhism clothe this doctrine? In Buddhism, man looks back at the incarnations which he has passed through and forward to the incarnations which he has still to experience. That we pass through many incarnations is an entirely exoteric teaching in Buddhism. It is quite wrong to speak of an abstract similarity between all religions. Mighty and far-reaching differences exist between them, as, for example, between Christianity, which for centuries harbored no thoughts of reincarnation, and exoteric Buddhism, which lived and moved in such thoughts. It is useless to look at these things in an abstract way. One must recognize the world of reality. For the Buddhist, it is an utter certainty that man always returns to the earth, but he looks at this in the following way. He says, quote, Combat the urge to descend into these incarnations, for your real task is, as quickly as possible, to free yourself from the thirst to go through them, 
so as to live in freedom from all earthly incarnation in a spiritual realm. So the Buddhist strives to acquire all the forces he can in order to withdraw from the cycle of incarnations as soon as possible. Buddhism does not have, and this is plain in its exoteric teaching, a strong maturing impulse toward perfection of the kind which would enable the Buddhists to say, quote, by all means, let the incarnations come, close quote. Through the Christ impulse, we can so shape ourselves that we can extract ever more and more from our repeated earthly experiences. Through the Christ impulse, we possess a force which can continually increase the significance of these incarnations. Permeate Buddhism, or what is found in it of the true doctrine of reincarnation, with the Christ impulse, and you have a new element which gives the earth a new meaning in the evolution of mankind. Christianity, on the other hand, already contains the Christ impulse, also in an esoteric form. But how has it regarded this impulse in earlier centuries? Undoubtedly, the exoteric Christian sees in it something infinitely perfect that should live in himself as the great ideal toward which he continually draws closer. But how presumptuous it would be for the Christian to think that in a single earthly life he could have strength enough to bring to fulfillment the seed which can be kindled into life through the Christ impulse? How presumptuous of the exoteric Christian to believe that in one life we could adequately unfold the Christ impulse. That is why he believes instead that after we go through the gates of death we have the opportunity to develop further, to unfold the Christ impulse in the spiritual world. The exoteric Christian conceives of a spiritual life after death from which there is no return to the earth. But does an exoteric Christian who believes in existence in a spiritual world after life on earth understand the Christ impulse? He does not understand it in the least. For if he did, he would never believe that what the Christ impulse has to give him can be achieved in a spiritual life beyond death without any return to the earth. In order that the deed of Golgotha could take place, in order that this victory over death could be achieved, the Christ impulse had to descend into this life on earth to accomplish something which can be experienced and lived through only on our earth. The Christ came down to earth because the power of the deed of Golgotha had to work upon human beings dwelling in physical bodies. Hence the Christ power can also only work at first on those who are incarnated in a physical body. When we have received in earthly life the power of the mystery of Golgotha, this impulse can then continue to work and perfect itself in us after death. Only as much of it, however, as we have absorbed between birth and death can mature in us. We need to return to earth again to perfect it further. Only in successive earthly lives can we learn to understand all that lives in the Christ impulse. We could never understand the Christ impulse if we lived only once on the earth. This impulse, therefore, must lead us through repeated earth lives, because the earth is the place 
for the discovery of the meaning of the mystery of Golgotha. And so Christianity is only complete if we replace the assumption that we could fulfill the Christ impulse and ideal in one incarnation by the other thought, that this can happen only through repeated earthly lives. What we experience of it on earth, we can then bring back into the spiritual world. We can bring back as much as we have grasped on earth of the Christ impulse, which as the most significant impulse for all earthly life itself had to be accomplished on the earth. We can see then that the thought which spiritual revelation must next add to Christianity is a thought born out of Christianity itself, that of reincarnation. When we understand this, we will realize the spiritual scientific significance for us of our awareness of the Whitsun revelation. Such awareness assures us that we can experience a renewal of the revelation of the power of the fiery tongues which descended upon those who first understood the Christ. Much that has been spoken of recently in our circles can come before us today with new meaning. We see the fusion of East and West, of the two mighty revelations of Christianity and Buddhism. We see them flow together in spiritual realms. And by truly understanding the Christian Whitsun thought, we can advance the flowing together of these two greatest religions of the earth today. But through external impulses alone, we cannot unite their revelations. That would be to stop at mere theorizing. Anyone trying to take what Christianity and Buddhism have provided up till now in order to weld them together into a new religion would not create a new spiritual content for mankind, but only an abstract theory incapable of warming a single human soul. If this is to happen, new revelations are necessary. That, for us, is what resounds today as the Annunciation of Spirit Knowledge. It is audible, though, so far only to those who have developed themselves through spiritual scientific schooling, so that Christ can speak within them, the Christ who is with us until the end of earth existence. We know that we live in an important time of human evolution, that already, before the close of this century, new forces will develop in the human soul, which will lead to the unfolding of a kind of etheric clairvoyance. This will allow, as if through natural development, a renewal for certain human beings of the event which Paul experienced at Damascus. For the heightened spiritual powers of man, Christ will return in an etheric garb. Ever more and more souls will share in what Paul experienced at Damascus. Then it will be seen in the world that spiritual science heralds a renewed and transformed truth of the Christ impulse. Only those will understand the new revelation who believe that the fresh stream of the spiritual life into which Christ once and for all times poured himself will remain living for all ages to come. Whoever does not wish to believe that may choose to preach an outmoded Christianity. But whoever believes in the Whitsun event and understands it will also become aware that the original Christian gospel 
will never cease evolving, will continue to speak to humanity in ever new ways, that there will always be present the individualized soul worlds of the Holy Spirit, of the fiery tongues, and that in ever renewed fire and impulse the human soul will be able to live with and live out of the Christ impulse. We can believe in the future of Christianity when we truly understand the Whitsun thought. Its mighty picture then comes before us with a force that works like a force present in the soul itself. Then we can feel the future as the first disciples felt it when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. If only we are willing to bring to life in our souls something which overleaps all boundaries separating the different parts of humanity which speaks a language that all souls, all the world over, can understand. We can feel the thought of peace, of love, of harmony, which lies in the Whitsun thought. And we can feel this Whitsun thought enlivening our Whitsun festival. We can feel it as an assurance of our hope for freedom and eternity. Because we feel the individualized spirit awakening in our souls, there awakens in us its most significant attribute, unending life of the spiritual. Through sharing in the spiritual, we can become conscious of our immortality and eternity. And in the Whitsun thought, we truly realize the power of those primal words which initiate after initiate passed on and which reveal to us the meaning of wisdom and eternity. These words handed on from epoch to epoch, reveal to us the Whitsun thought. Today, for the first time, they can sound forth exoterically, so that all mankind may understand them. Quote, Being upon being conjoins in widths of space. Being upon being follows in cycles of time. If you remain, O man, in space, in time, you dwell in the transient world alone, but mightily your soul uplifts itself when it sees, divining or knowing, eternity beyond widths of space, beyond cycles of time. That's the end of the English. I'm going to try the German here. Wesen reit sich an Wesen in den Raumes weiten. Wesen folgt Aufwesen in den Zeitenläufen. Verbleibst du in Raumes Weiten und Zeitenläufen, bist du, o Mensch, allein im Gebiete der Vergänglichkeit, über sie aber erhebt deine Seele sich gewaltiglich. Wenn sie erahnend oder wissend schaut, das Unvergängliche jenseits der Raumesweiten und jenseits der Zeitenläufer. The end of Lecture 18